The group pushing a yes vote on the Unit 5 referendum say this one feels different after the first try failed. We're actually being bombarded with people coming and asking and asking if they can be involved with it. I think people didn't feel it was real. That is next on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on the show today, Central Illinois' newest member of Congress will have a role in shaping agriculture policy at a critical time. I'm really, um, you know, optimistic, you know, especially going into the Agriculture Committee in a farm bill year. A conversation with Democrat Eric Sorensen, plus there's a long list of political wrongdoers in Illinois who are still getting a state pension and taxpayers are footing the bill. They would definitely get involved. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Ryan Fuller and his mother Stephanie. It was definitely worth it. It was evident from the get-go that they were so caring and compassionate and patient (laughs) with a young guy like him. (laughs) Ryan and Stephanie's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Early voting begins Thursday in the local municipal election. That includes a second attempt to pass Unit 5's tax referendum. That's aimed at closing a $12 million budget deficit. The pro-referendum group, Yes for Unit 5, says this time feels different. That's mainly because Unit 5's school board has now spelled out an extensive list of budget cuts that go into effect if the referendum fails. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, Yes for Unit 5 spokesperson Patrick Maneri, and new chairperson Corey and Chapman explain what they think has changed. There's been a lot more volunteers coming on board um, to help its service uh, serve in different roles, uh, which has helped tremendously. Um, I'd say the first time around, we were reaching out and asking and asking and asking for people to to engage with us and to be a part of it. And now we're actually being bombarded with people coming and asking and asking if they can be involved with it and how they would best be utilized to help uh, spread messages. And so it, it feels different this time. You think back in November and I think people didn't feel it was real. But the most recent board meeting proved that it was real. I mean, the school board had to make some significant cuts over the last few months. And to me, I feel like that really just focused the community of we can't ignore this any longer. This is something that's impending. And I think really laying the groundwork that this is... Yes, we've already done some cuts, and the cuts are going to get so much worse, right? When we start talking about cutting junior high funding, you're talking about cutting high school sports. I mean, that what is high school without the sports? It starts to not feel like the same experience, and that's really driving home to the the parents that, I mean, this is something, not even just the parents, the community, that this is something that's going to have long-lasting impact if we do not get it passed. Hmm. Corinne, you were not, I don't think, involved with the, the steering committee the first time around. How did you make the decision to to elevate your, your level of involvement here? So I think in November, you know, and I, I say the community felt like it wasn't imminent. I didn't feel like it was imminent. I, I really felt confident that this community would understand the situation and make the decision to to pass the referendum. And I honestly didn't feel like my my voice, my involvement was necessary. But man, when I woke up the next day after election, I found out that the referendum 
had not passed, I felt physically sick. And just really understanding the implications of that motivated me to to step into this role. Do you think that the cuts that the school board has, has set into motion here, is that what is driving people to come to you now instead of you reaching out to people now you are being bombarded with interest? Is that is that what it was? It certainly makes it feel more real. I think before it, it just wasn't tangible to people. They, you know, and... Unfortunately, if you look back over the past year or two, the, the school board ha- has threatened some cuts and then not followed through. And I think that that created this kind of laissez-faire sort of attitude amongst the, the community. And the, those cuts really did drive. No, this is this is serious. This is a this is a revenue issue um, that that we cannot overcome. Even if even if we do these cuts and we do, ex- you know, more cuts and really strip out all elements of high school and and junior high and grade school, everything that's considered extracurricular, everything that's considered addition to kind of your reading, writing, arithmetic, that it still isn't enough, actually, that that the, you know, the unfunded mandates, the rising costs, the reduced reduced, uh, revenue from the state, it has created a hole that that we can't get out of without this referendum in, in place. A specific situation I want to ask about is is Carlock. So Carlock Elementary School would be slated for closure in the second year of, of this, this list of cuts the district is considering. And I think it's interesting because in November, the two precincts, the voting precincts that, that feed into Carlock Elementary voted against the referendum by a pretty wide margin, like 67%, I think, in, in those, two, those two precincts. I guess, how does Yes for Unit 5 like approach a situation like that. I can speak adamantly about this because I live in the Carlock School District and I have a young one that is supposed to be starting kindergarten in Carlock in the next couple of years. And so, Ryan, your numbers are right. You know, um, it's a conservative area of our um, of our community. Um, it's more rural. Um, they are they they very much are mindful of their spending and they're they're working very hard. But what I will say is is that at the school board meeting in January, the special called school board meeting, the number of Carlock families that came out and spoke, the number of Carlock students that stood in front of a, an elected board of officials as elementary students that address this with that board, shows that. While the numbers of the election in November are of that 67%, that is not what the whole community feels. And I, I feel like, and we are, we are working with the Carlock community to find opportunities to make sure that they are informed of the facts that the district is putting out around these topics. And this, this is the difference between the November vote where it was not very real to a lot of voters. And the April 4th vote, where now it's very tangible. It's incredibly tangible because I think we have to remember the board has already voted for these cuts with honoring that if the referendum passes, they will revisit that vote and pull those cuts back. Hmm. But and they're not from our understanding, they're not using it as leverage. They're just making a decision that's in the best interest of the operations of the school district because they cannot continue to amass debt. So earlier, I think you said that the school board was not using the cuts as leverage to try to get this this referendum passed. I guess I'd push back on that a little bit. Can't more than one thing be true here? Can't they be using it for leverage and they actually have to do it? You don't think they're using it for leverage to try to get this passed? I don't disagree with that thought, but I don't think that that is the first point of leverage. I think that they want the community to be very aware, incredibly aware of... Underfunded schools mean programs get cut. 
And it's their role as school board members to make sure that the books balance. Yeah. And I, I do want to add, you know, it, if you're thinking that it's a threat, the threat implies that these cuts aren't necessary. If anything, these cuts aren't enough, right? You're thinking about t stripping all of these pieces out of the curriculum, out of the school, raising class sizes, making school days shorter, completely changing the, the school day experience for our children. And it's honestly, it's still not enough. We still need additional revenue to balance the books. So to me, it can't feel like a threat if, if it's actually a very reasonable uh, action to take. Something else that is a little different this time around is, is going to be voter turnout. So back in November, voter turnout in McLean County, about 57%. Last time we had a, a mayoral municipal election, school board, this kind of thing, that turnout then was 12%. So a pretty big difference. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for, for the pro-referendum folks like you? It's always hard with municipal elections. You know, you go back to the tangibility of that. Do people really feel if their certain city council member is elected versus another? Most people in their day-to-day -day life, that, that doesn't resonate. But you start talking about their child's education. You start talking about the future of this community. And quite frankly, the underlying economy, I do think there will be more turnout because something that, you know, municipal elections, like I said, not feeling particularly like it's impacting me. This is impacting me. You know, this is impacting, I would say, everyone, and they're going to feel it. Voters did reject this idea a couple of months ago. What do you think of the criticism that is out there that the pro-referendum uh, folks, yourself included, including the school board, too, are just not willing to listen to voters, that voters tried to send a message and it's not being heard or listened to? I go back to the data points changed. In November, the, the voters did not know what the cuts were. Now they know what the cuts are. Yeah. The cuts have been board approved. It's unfortunate that we're at this crossroads, but I think, and and I've been a part of numerous referendums, Ryan, as a past educator living in multiple states. It's not until we're crossing these these areas of funding where the mass public gets engaged with the operations of public schools. It's unfortunate that it always comes down to when cuts are being made. So last time around, um, the Yes for Unit 5 campaign made the case that, that actually people's taxes would go down uh, because of, of the financial maneuvering that takes place as debt comes off the rolls and, you know, expiring debt and all that. Are you going to be using that message again or with cuts now out on the table? Do you do you need that message? We are engaging in that conversation with people who ask about it. Um, it's all that information is still out there. It's on both the Unit 5 website and the Yes for Unit 5 website. Um, but I'll be real honest with you, Ryan. The conversations that we are having right now are much more going back to the tangible topics, right? These very specific like. And so let's just use um, I'll use volleyball, for example. We have a great volleyball system inside of our school systems where kids can go and be a part of volleyball. They can try out for volleyball, make their volleyball teams all the way through college scholarship offers and all that stuff. If that doesn't exist in our schools anymore, I'm which company is going to come in? and try to get that market. And, w and then it's not a balanced equal access anymore to every kid. It's who has the funding to be able to pay for their kid to be in that activity. And that's where this pay for play concept happens. Only the families that can afford it will get to be a part of it. That was Yes for Unit 5 spokesperson Patrick Maneri and new chairperson Corin Chapman speaking with WGLT's Ryan Denham. 
Coming up tomorrow on Sound Ideas, you'll hear from others trying to shape public opinion on the referendum, including those who are opposed to it. As a matter of disclosure, WGLT's general manager, R.C. McBride, is a member of the Yes for Unit 5 steering committee. He no longer chairs the group. He has no role in WGLT's coverage of the referendum. Bernie Sanders is angry about capitalism. He's also bothered that Democrats are losing support among the working class. That conversation on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen tomorrow from 4 to 9 a.m. on WGLT, 89.1 FM and WGLT.org. Coming up on Sound Ideas, admitted Illinois legislative wrongdoers are getting to keep their state pensions. You'll hear that story in about five minutes. Central Illinois Congressman Eric Sorensen has started his first term in Washington with an appointment that's significant to much of his congressional district. Sorensen's appointment to the House Agriculture Committee comes at a critical time. The clock is ticking to pass a new farm bill before the September deadline. It comes as Congress is reorganizing following the recent election. Sorensen is a Democrat from Moline. His district includes parts of Bloomington Normal. In this edition of Food Trek, Sorensen tells WGLT's Eric Stock, it's vital that Congress come to an agreement on a way to help farmers and provide nutrition assistance. When I think about um, the connection uh, that Bloomington Normal Peoria uh, have to Rockford in the Quad Cities, it's farming. Um, it's agriculture. We feed the the world. And, um, and, you know, in the farm bill, you know, my job is to be the advocate for the farmers. Um, I want to make sure that we put the right people at the table to make the decisions together. It won't be a decision that I make wholly. It's a decision that we make together. And, and we need bipartisanship um, on that. Um, you know, I'm really, um, you know, optimistic you know, especially going into the Agriculture Committee in a farm bill year that happens every five years, um, that we're going to be able to to follow the data, um, follow the science, uh, and make the best decisions that are going to affect our farm families for uh, the next generation. And a big part of the farm bill is nutrition and supplemental assistance. There's also a lot of protections for farmers. Are there particular areas that need more funding in your view? And are there any areas that you feel could be trimmed if there, if it comes down to that? Well, certainly uh, we need to make sure that SNAP benefits um, remain in their entirety. Um, I, I believe that we've got a great delegation um, in Congress uh, from the state of Illinois. Um, myself uh, with alongside Nikki Budzinski, Jonathan Jackson. Um, and so we're going to be able to fight not only for the family farmers, but to make sure that food assistance remains in the farm bill, because we know that that's something that uh, that members on the other side of the aisle want to cut. And, and we know that that's that's got to be taken off the off the table. You know, we also need to make sure that um, that we support. Um, for instance, you know, a, a lot of our farmers are producing uh, corn for ethanol. We have to make sure that E15 is able to be used all year round. But then it's taking it one step beyond that. Um, and that's where, you know, not to jump too far ahead, um, Eric, but, you know, we need to make sure that that the innovation is there for our farmers going forward, such that we're working with aviation companies um, to make sure that that biofuels um, are being refined such that the standards are going up and up so that the um, airline uh, industry uh, will accept biofuels. Uh, because then as the, um, as the demand for ethanol goes down, the demand for biofuels goes up and, and then, you know, farmers can be uh, more part of the, the solution.
And going back to SNAP benefits, advocates have asked Congress to separate SNAP employment and training from SNAP eligibility. They argue that that it actually reduces benefits for the people who need them. Would you support additional funding to allow for that? We, we need to make sure that the funding is is connecting for the people that need it. Um, I think that's first and foremost. And that's, you know, I think the way that we look at it today, the argument that we're going to have with folks on the other side, um, they just want to cut, slash and cut uh, from the budget. Uh, we need to make sure that the people that are struggling to make ends meet have what they need. Um, and it is a government's role uh, to make sure that we're providing for the people that need it. Um, so as it's not just about creating opportunities, but as we're creating these opportunities, we got to bring people along. And as we bring people along, you know, I think that's, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, uh, an open and shut, uh, you know, thing to look at. Are you optimistic that a farm bill can be approved by the September deadline with a divided Congress? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's going to take a lot of hard work. Um, and, uh, you know, looking at the uh, members on the committee, um, I see a great uh, ability for us to work in a bipartisan manner. Um, in fact, um, you know, I've already had substantive con- uh, conversations with members on the other side of the aisle concerning some of the things that that we talk about. And and that's why, you know, as a meteorologist, as somebody who who has studied science for the better part of my life, um, it's making sure that we're following the data and the science and, and we're able to to check the politics at the door. And and I'm really optimistic, not only in in my agriculture committee being a part here, but in the science committee, we'll be able to do that. That was Central Illinois Congressman Eric Sorensen with WGLT's Eric Stock. Tomorrow on Sound Ideas, Sorensen will discuss what else he has planned in his freshman term in Washington and whether he wants to see President Joe Biden run for re-election. Support for WGLT agriculture coverage comes from Growmark and its FS members, your trusted advisor in all your ag decisions. Sound Ideas, stories and conversations around Bloomington, Normal, and McLean County. That's what you're listening to on WGLT. Thank you for doing so. I'm John Norton. A steady stream of former Illinois lawmakers lost their jobs amid federal corruption charges, but not their state pensions. The group includes tax cheats, indicted former House Speaker Michael Madigan, and his inner circle who are awaiting trial. Dave McKinney from Chicago Public Media has more on how corruption has not cracked the retirement nest eggs for some past state officials. Former State Senator Terry Link was a government mole. He wore a wire on a fellow state lawmaker, though he refused to admit it as reporters chased him through the state capitol in 2019. I'm not going to continuously answer this every day of my life. I'm down here to do a job that I was elected to do, and that's what I'm going to do. But that was in the state house. In the courthouse the following year, Link admitted to his own crime, that he didn't pay his share of state and federal taxes. Link had been using campaign contributions for personal expenses. There's a state law against using campaign money that way. Link even voted for it. But a panel with the power to revoke a lawmaker's retirement determined Link could keep his state pension. Attorney General Kwame Raoul said, because Link's admitted wrongdoing, using campaign cash for personal expenses and the tax evasion that went along with that didn't, quote, relate to his time as a state senator. That panel sided with Raul's reasoning. All told, Link has cashed about $200,000 in state pension checks the past two years. House Republican leader Tony McCombie says her constituents would be outraged to learn they're the ones paying for Link's retirement benefit.
they would definitely be appalled. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. You have corrupt legislators uh, collecting a pension that is paid for by them. WBEZ has documented nearly $2 million in pension payments to former Illinois legislators and ex-state officials ensnared in a sprawling federal corruption probe. Those payments also have gone to, in one case, a widow, and in another, an ex-wife. Included on that list is former Democratic State Representative Edward Acevedo. He also pleaded guilty to federal tax evasion. The state panel, again acting on Raul's advice, awarded Acevedo his state pension last year. Some of the more than $265,000 that Acevedo has received came while he was in federal prison. Told of WBEZ's findings, Democratic State Senator Mary Edley Allen says it's hard to grasp why felonious ex-lawmakers are drawing taxpayer-funded pensions. She favors barring anyone convicted of felonies from getting that benefit. We need to start over again and pass something that doesn't allow this to happen in the future. It's really a betrayal of public's trust. Another admitted wrongdoer is the late Democratic State Senator Martin Sandoval. Sandoval admitted pocketing more than $250,000 in bribes while in office and entered into a federal plea deal on bribery and tax evasion charges. I take full responsibility for my actions. I'm ashamed and I'm sorry. I want to apologize to the people of Illinois and to my constituents. But Sandoval died several months after his plea deal was announced, so he never was convicted of any felonies. That's one reason his widow is now drawing part of his legislative pension, close to $100,000 the past two years. Democratic Senator Robert Martwick chairs the state panel that oversees legislative pensions. Martwick says his board chose to follow the advice of the attorney general, and he doesn't think more legal deterrents are needed. Every one of those decisions they never come easy. Marwick's panel could be busy in the future. Former House Speaker Michael Madigan is set for trial next year for racketeering, bribery, and conspiracy. He's gotten more than $200,000 in state pension payments since 2021. Several of Madigan's closest advisors, including former lobbyist Michael McLean, also face their own upcoming federal trials, and they've been drawing state pensions as well. McCombie and Republican State Representative Amy Elick want to stop these kinds of pension payments to ex-state officials under criminal indictment. But both say their pending legislation may need to be broadened given WBEZ's findings. Here's Elick. This is one more reason not to trust politicians. Raul's office and an attorney for Acevedo declined comment, and lawyers for Lincoln Sandoval didn't respond to multiple email inquiries from WBEZ. This is Dave McKinney. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton with story help today from Chicago Public Media's Dave McKinney and WGLT's Eric Stock and Ryan Denham. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.